Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. Hope everyone had a happy new year. I guess it is the new year, so I hope everyone does have a happy new year. I actually was out this past week with the coronavirus, so I, w- I had a lot of computer time, a lot of time on my hands, a lot of computer time, did a lot of Zoom calls, some interviews, some great great content that's coming your way because of that, but feeling a lot better now and, and really excited to get back after it, work with some players again, and <clears throat> just get back to my normal routine. As you can tell, I'm still coughing a little bit. On this episode, we have someone who's very special. His name is Joe Ferraro. He coached baseball for over 20 years as a college coach, a high school coach. He is a teacher at a high school. He's been doing that for over 20 years, too, and and was an English teacher for some time. And now he's really specializing in communication and when it comes to persuasive writing and how to speak better, how to communicate better, how to ask better questions. He's someone who I've worked with continually since probably this past July because I just felt like I needed to get better myself as an interviewer and as a coach and just speaker in general. And he's been fantastic. I've learned so many different things and and just have felt myself get better, which is so important because you can't lie to yourself at the end of the day. Like You know if you're getting better or not. So he has his own podcast, isn't it? Is its podcast is called the One Percent Better Podcast. It's not baseball related, but he has some fascinating guests on the show, and you can learn a lot of things, even if it isn't necessarily just baseball content, because it's the best of the best. And he gets some incredible guests on that are just dominating other different uh, types of the market. So 1% Better is his podcast, Joe Ferraro. Joe, great guy. He's been a mentor to me. I've worked with him. He's coached me. He still continues to coach me. So no matter who you are, even if you're someone who doesn't even like baseball, I don't know why you'd be listening to this podcast, but even if you didn't like baseball, you're going to get something out of this interview today because everyone needs to know how to speak better. We can all get better at that. So I think that's this is something that's going to be uh, applicable to anybody who's listening and, and will be able to help. This podcast is sponsored by Driveline Plus. Driveline Plus is a growing library of the best information on player development. Members will find how-tos on baseball technology and the latest research findings from Driveline's lab, along with inside access to Driveline's trainers to make sure you can effectively coach your team. Plus members will also get the best discounts that you can find on Driveline training gear. Listeners of this podcast can get $25 off their first year of Driveline Plus using the coupon code JONES25. That's JONES25 for $25 off your first year of Driveline Plus. Go to drivelinebaseball.com slash plus to learn more. That's the easiest ad read I've ever done. I've always been a huge fan of Driveline and can speak to my own experience with them. I, I greatly respect anybody who is constantly trying to find ways to push the envelope to get better, to move player development forward. And um, so I, I have so much respect for Driveline and what they do. So uh, this this uh, sponsorship is perfect fit for what we're doing here at PJB. So again, drivelinebaseball.com slash plus Type in coupon code JONES25 and you'll get $25 off your first year of Driveline Plus. Ladies and gentlemen, here is my episode with Joe Ferraro. 
All right, we now welcome on Joe Ferraro. Joe is the host of the 1% Better podcast. Uh, Joe, thanks for coming on the show today. Patrick, it is a pleasure, man. I uh, mean that. Thanks for having me. Why 1% Better? Why the name 1% Better? Because it's attainable. Because it's sustainable, and I don't mean to rhyme. Because it's something that, you know, back in the day... Uh, I think I lost 30 pounds on the South Beach diet and then uh, gained 35 back by the end of the year. <laughs> and I figured, you know, it was, it was sexy and I was getting thinner and it was working and then it was just not sustainable. Um, so over time, I love that idea of sustainability. But there is one more other piece to it that I don't talk much about, which is I think we can all do a little better in all areas of our lives. Now we have to pick and choose. But a lot of times, give a simplistic example, someone will say, I'm thinking of going to this restaurant tonight. And the first thought that comes to my mind is like, if you were to put in five minutes of strategic research, you would go from here to here in the restaurant experience, like that 1% better experience by putting in relatively little. So I try to carry that over, right? I'll say, you know, I like this pen, but is there a way to improve the pen by just kind of asking someone you trust? So even though that sometimes yields more than 1%, uh, that's the part that I don't talk about much. It's interesting to hear you say that because I I listen to so many different successful professional athletes, right? And they all talk about Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, and they all kind of say the same thing where they're just trying to focus on getting a little bit better every single day. And I've, I've heard it so many times. It's kind of like you kind of just blow it off as they're just saying it just to... Uh, I don't know, just kill time or whatever. But you really think about it and hearing you talk about it, like there's there's something really behind that where the best of the best in, in every profession are just trying to get a little bit better. I like how you said it because it's sustainable. My eight-year-old daughter yesterday saw a billboard, I was told, my wife said, and it said, trying to get 1% better every day. And it was a, it was a medical care facility. And she's like, did they steal that from daddy? And I'm like, I've arrived. Like, yes, they stole that from daddy's podcast. So no, it's right. I mean, think about an athlete improving footwear, right? If they can get just a little bit more comfortable, or you think of someone who's getting just a little bit of better microphone. Now, as I say that, I think you and I both know you have to stop at some point because otherwise we could start hiding and saying, if I don't have the right microphone, if I don't have the right headphones, I'm never going to launch. And I think those two things are at odds and we have to be careful about them. So you've been you've been teaching now for over 20 years. Not to, I don't want to make you feel old or anything like that, but over 20 years you've been teaching. I know you've been doing like you're doing some public speaking, creative writing too, and then you were formerly um, in an English teacher. Yes, sir. I still teach English. Uh, English 12, the last stop before college, public speaking, creative writing. You're right on the money. What's your favorite thing to teach? Public speaking, uh, because of uh, the direct transfer to everyday life. Teachers are so often handicapped by this question of, when are we going to use this? And uh, I I feel that for today's youth. But they never, ever have asked me that question in in 23 years. Um, No one's ever said, where will I have to use this communication where I stand in front of a group of strangers and friends and articulate a message in a persuasive way? And I have a built-in advantage because of that. Now, that makes it sound simplistic. Like you just show up and proverbially roll out the balls or the microphones and everything works out. There's a lot that goes to it, but I don't hide from the fact that that has that built-in advantage of utility. Um, And I also think that there's something to be said for the bond that emerges when these young adults share so much of themselves. I think there's a metaphor for everybody listening. When you're vulnerable, when you're honest, when you can make people laugh, cry, and think, 
over the course of a 20-week semester, I've seen incredibly magical things happen. And you know, for all those reasons, I, I, can't, I can't hide and say it's not my favorite class. If you could go back before you started teaching over 20 years ago and you, would, you could just sit in a classroom with your, and just watch yourself, what would be some of the differences that you would notice between then and now? I think the word bravado comes to mind, uh, you know, and it, it really doesn't have anything to do with being brave. I think it has to do with hiding insecurities. And I think coaches and professionals and teachers do this all the time. And I was certainly guilty of it in early days where it's like, if I just talk the whole time, if I show my expertise and knowledge, then no one will know what I don't know. So if I just keep this ball rolling and I just kind of move it down, move the chain, so to speak. So I think that's a big piece of it. Now, I was always in, interested and invested in creating a, a positive environment because I think you and I have had conversations about maybe some, some failings of the school system by, by large. A lot of that has to do with kids just not wanting to be there. Um, so I always was strong at that, in my opinion. But uh, I think that there was that... you know, I know less now, 23 years later. I'm sure of less than I was then. So I think that's kind of the, the place that I would start in trying to evaluate who I was years ago. How do you teach someone who doesn't want to be there? Slowly, <laughs> carefully. Uh, I mean that without being tongue in cheek. I mean, um, Seth Godin, one of my you know virtual mentors, always talks about enrollment. And if you don't want to be there, it's an uphill battle. It is, but we're also, at least I am, a public school educator. So I believe in the power of maybe winning someone over that, that didn't mean to be there. Um, I, I can go into strategic ideas, but one thing that I'll say is I remember uh, one of my first ever students had her head down. This is when I was teaching eighth grade. Sometimes people can't believe I taught middle school. She had her head down, hair was covering her eyes, completely disengaged as I saw her for the first time. And I knew some, you know, all the things in teacher school. You're like, there's some serious red flags here. And in that moment, and I was a young teacher, hopefully I got this one right. Um, I, I thought there was an opportunity to, to check in with her and I didn't know how to do it. So you go to your toolbox and you say, what's the best way to do it? I remember taking out a small piece of paper and writing on it. Hi, it's nice to meet you. I'm Mr. Ferraro. Um, I, I'm willing to do any of the following. Leave you alone. Check in with you. Meet you after class to talk. Tell you a silly joke. Check the one that applies. And I folded it up. And when the bell rang, I just went over and just slid it underneath her notebook and just walked away. And uh, the, the end of that story is that she was mentioned in my best man's speech at my wedding. Um, she is in touch with me to this day. She emails me on my birthday every year. She's 35 years old. Um, and we've remained in touch um, with just a huge success story. Now, I wish they were all that easy. Uh, but that was a moment where, to your question, trying to figure out the very best way to reach this person in this moment you think about other previous situations. You think about all the different ways and it has to happen quickly and organically. I happen to choose the right outcome there. And um, I think about that a lot because each person that we're trying to reach, whether it's in business or in education, there's not a right way. There's not a wrong way. But sometimes there's something that's closer to optimal. And uh, I'm pretty pretty thankful for, for April in that moment. What, what made you do that? What made you write down those few different scenarios on that piece of paper and put it underneath her notebook? Strategically, I thought, let's do this in a low pressure way. So let's start there. And then I actually asked myself, and I asked this a lot in coaching, I asked this a lot in teaching, what would everyone else do in this situation? And I, I do the opposite. So I feel like even well-attentioned adults 
in that case have been interface, giving her the strategies, slipping her, you know, research and whatever they meant. And I'm sure they meant well. I also have to acknowledge I was the young, cool teacher then, right? <laughs> I'm a little different now. I'm the, I, I kind of go into a different role of like that dad, that dad um, vibe, if you will, the protective vibe. But then I was the young hip teacher. I had that working for me. So I have to acknowledge that. Um, but then I went the other way. So with some strategy and I just said, what would be the least resistance I could provide and still let her know that I'm available if, if she needed to talk? That's really cool. I, I think that what I love so much about talking to, to you and talking to some other teachers is I, I think high school teachers, I don't know what it is about them. There's such good coaches too. Cause I think you just, you have to communicate and you have to be creative as you just gave an example, because you're, you're dealing with kids a lot of times who, I mean, myself included in high school, didn't really want to be there. So you have to be creative if you, if you care, which obviously you do. But um, that's why I was, I was curious as that why you thought of that, because I think emotional intelligence is so important in teaching and in coaching. And so I was just curious if, you know, there was a specific reason as to why you gave that example. But what, what do you think it is about kids today versus kids when you started that's different when it comes to learning? I don't buy into the uh, overarching premise that kids today are different. You know, there's a beautiful quote that you could find on the internet pretty easily where it's like kids today are spoiled. They, they love luxury. They don't listen to their elders. They're very rude. And then I often some, you know, I've, I've used it in different workshops and with my student, my students. And I'll say, who do you think said this? And they'll, they'll kind of see where I'm going and they'll say, well, this has had to be something from the sixties, right? Like this is, I know what you're doing here, Mr. Ferraro. This is not like a current comment. And I'm like, you guys are onto something. And then when I reveal it, it's Socrates who lived 500 years before Jesus Christ died. And they're like, what? Like, wait, it doesn't make sense. So with that backdrop in mind, that what I do think is different is the anxiety that the kids walk around with. Some of it self-inflicted, some of it social media, some of it just a different generation. I think the phones, we, we can't just like brush that off. Like we're, you and I are, for lack of a better word, we love technology, right? So imagine a kid who's finding their way in the world and this phone is thrust upon them. So I think that's a huge piece of it. Um, then I think from a, from a tactical standpoint, from a pedagogy standpoint, I think they're craving to know why we're doing it. And in the old days, and I mean that with as much respect as I can muster, we would say, because I said so. And I, I kind of, I don't think I've ever said that because it's just so anti to who I am, but we've all heard it said. Um, what we try to do now in my classroom is get ahead of that. Before a kid even has a chance to ask, part of the lesson unfolding is why this is important to you. And I think that's, that's a big change that's worth mentioning for, for listeners, which is if we can get ahead of it, if we know why, first of all, let's start there. We have to know why the kids need to use it. And I don't know what some other teachers use in those moments if it's hard to tell. You have to be pretty artful about it, not dishonest, but artful about you know, why algebra is important. I know it's important for critical thinking and problem solving, but a, a true algebra teacher has to have more than that because you can get those two things other places. So when I'm teaching anything, I, I'm going to say, you know, here's some places I've seen this show up in my life. Here's how I think it can help you. Um, it's not going to reach everybody, but I think this, not just because I said so, not because the state said so, um, because we're going to get ahead of it and let our young people know why this will be valuable and useful. 
Yeah, when you mentioned algebra there, I, I, I was that kid who was like, well, how is this going to be helpful to me in my life? And I don't know if it ever necessarily would, but I do, you started to convince me a little bit there, you know, strategic thinking and that type of a thing. One of the the cool things that I, I do like is the amount of thought you do put into, you know, not just your content online, but I, obviously I can tell just as a teacher yourself, what what makes you driven when it comes to teaching? My friends, uh, high school friends, they make fun of me for the word impact. They'll even say like hashtag impact because, um, you know, I'll joke with them and feed into it and I'll say, you know, listen, I get to make an impact tomorrow. And I'm not, I'm for them. That's, that's purely me saying that for my high school friends to like tease them. But that is the truth too, right? Behind every joke, there's a little bit of honesty. That's the word, right? I want, I would love to have helped a young person, you know, years from now, think back to something that I said or, you know, the old cliche is like you're planting seeds you might never see grow. And that takes a long time as an educator to come to grips with that because you're saying like, did anything I have made an impact on this person? Did I uh, alter their direction in a positive way? And when you teach for 22 and a half years, you, you get a lot of those people that come back and they tell you things and you're like, I've forgotten that or thank you for reminding me of that. But to me, um, there's a lot of ways to answer the question, but I'm always thinking about not being neutral right? Having some type of effect on the person in my room. And maybe to go back to an earlier question you asked, maybe I thought in my early days, all that effect would happen and that impact would happen in this way. And now as a seasoned veteran, uh, I just have more tools. I have more ways to try to see, hey, how do I impact that quiet kid who clearly does not like literature and hope to draw upon those experiences? Do you see other teachers doing the same thing? Oh yeah. Yeah. We have some, I work at an amazing school and um, some of the teachers and I will talk during lunch duty about different strategies. And one of the good friends of mine is the music teacher and one of the music teachers. And I see parallels in his work and how to, he, he evokes play and accountability and feedback. Um, one thing I will say is we don't do anywhere near, at least in my school, and, and I'll put myself right at the forefront, we get so busy, quote unquote, that we don't check out other teachers, right? And, and obviously with our health crises and where we're at now, it's not the best time in the world to do that. But one thing I'd love to double down with in the future is observing teachers. I've done it in the past. And I think that we can see each other teaching and that's just a huge gain, just like I learned from other podcasters. Um, I think that, that that's something we could get better at. But I do see teachers, and, and to be honest, do, teachers doing it at an even higher level than I'm doing it. I got to acknowledge that. So it'd be like a coach's clinic in a sense. Yeah. You know what happens? You go to these teacher uh, conferences, at least you know when it was in person and whatnot, um, and, and someone will be presenting. It's funny. You really you, you just made me think of something. They'll be presenting the, a lesson, but it won't be on relationships. It'd be the equivalent of, in your world, the drill, right? So, mm. so instead of saying, you know, how do we teach our, our kids to love literature? I'm sure that is out there. I just haven't seen it. It'll be like, how to write an introduction which really you can draw a straight line to your audience. Like, how do you hit the ball in the right center field gap? Right? Well, this clinic, this drill, this conference is the drill that helps you hit it to right center. Instead of saying like, how do we f get the kid to find the barrel more? You know, and, and I think there is a line there that you just made me kind of think about. And I wonder what opportunities are out there for teachers to focus on the relationship piece, the, class, the classroom culture piece in a non-hokey way. Like you don't put a beanbag in your classroom and then call it a day like that that ends the problem of culture in the classroom yeah any more than you say well if you put a towel under your right you know elbow all of a sudden you know so uh, 
there's something really there that we have to unpack. You were a coach for over, how long were you a coach in high school for? Well, I started coaching in 1999, 99 to 2004. I was the head coach at uh, a small division three baseball school. Uh, I think I was the youngest coach in the country. I was 21 years old. So it'd be harder to be young that, younger than that. Um, then I took uh, 10 years at the JV level. Uh, and then I coached three years at the varsity level. So I've had a, I've had a wide range of experiences, almost, almost 20 years of coaching. Why did you not continue with the college route? Because <laughs> the sixth athletic director in five years didn't like my coaching style. <laughs> oh, really? I worked, oh, yeah. I worked there for five years. I may have had seven athletic directors. I want to get that straight, but I try to close that part out. But the truth is, like, I was aggressive and I was... Same thing I described in the classroom, but higher degree because I just got done playing Division One baseball and my, I was on a national championship American Legion team. And I'm not going to say I thought I had baseball solved, but there was that part of me that was like, I know baseball, but I'm 21. So now I'm coaching against someone who's 45 and he has no respect for me at all. And to make matters worse, I'm going to show him and I'm going to show him. And we have the worst program in all of Division One, uh, Division Three baseball. And we're going to build these dugouts and we're going to do all this fundraising and we're going to get excited about it. And my work-life balance was less than less than uh, existent, right? And I'm literally putting socks on at stoplights as I'm going to the, to the game. And I'm enjoying it, but I'm like losing my voice every weekend screaming and I'm watching the Bobby Knight special and I'm trying to get IO going in a way that's life-changing. And then I think just truly like, I think our, our, you know, I think it was the seventh athletic director and he was just like, yeah, I think we're going to go in a different direction. Like the old <laughs> different direction talk. And then like, you know, they get the official resignation on paper. But um but at the same time, he, you know, it was pretty clear he didn't want me to be the head coach there anymore. And that's why it's so cool. And I'm so cognizant about my words when it comes to resign and whatnot. Because I guess three years ago now, when I left a high school varsity program after helping turn, turn the program around with a lot of help from the community and my assistant coaches and the players, it was like, I really left on my own terms, right? Like, yeah. I really wanted to focus on the podcast. And I really wanted to focus on coaching people. And I really wanted to spend some time with my at that time, five-year-old and, and eight-year-old. So it's always fun to hear coach's journey, but that's, that's a little bit of where I was. I think the average person out there doesn't realize how much time high school coaches put in for not even nothing, probably losing money if you really think about it. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, quite frankly, it's inspiring that they are, are so internally driven to, to give back for, for nothing, just to help and, and make an impact. What was the was that the final reason why you decided to to give up coaching baseball? No, the final reason was I was really getting some traction with the podcast. Um, I was finding myself much more driven to having conversations with my players than to run the, the latest drill out there. And my kids were at that age where I said to myself, "We've already left this program better than we found it. Um, I know we're going to be better next year." And I'm going to walk away from that. Like literally, it was that moment where people were like, you know, you guys, you're now at the point where you're going to compete. I'm like, I know, but like, I don't want to do it. I want to be home with the family. I'm an hour and eight minutes from where I live. Um, I just started getting clients where I'm working with them in, in terms of communication coaching. I'm doing some speaking at, at conferences. When you put that all together, you know, I said to myself, this is a perfect time. Even though, and I must acknowledge, I thought a lot of my identity at that point in my life was being a baseball coach. So to walk away from there was not an easy decision. Um, but I've never looked back. I think that um, we left it better than we found it. Um, I still have friends in baseball all, all over the, the country, I'm lucky to say. 
Um, but I really just found a, a love of conversation and helping people communicate. And then I can't lie, just my son is, you know, 11 now, and my daughter's eight and, you know, an hour and eight minutes each way wasn't, wasn't helping the process. An hour and eight minutes. Yeah. And the reason I know that is because sometimes I would drive there and I'd get there before the players who lived in town and then I would lord that over them. I'd be like, I got an hour and eight minutes to get here. You can't walk down the street. You know, that wasn't my best moment, but it's nonetheless true. Wait a second. Wait a second. So you full-time teacher, how far away is the school? Is you're, I assume you're, so the school you're teaching at is an hour and eight minutes away too? So I live, I'm the pride of Brookfield, Connecticut right now. That shirt that I'm representing, right? Is about 50 minutes from Valhalla High School where I've taught for the last 23 years. I was the JV coach there for 10, helped out with the 2010 state championship team. And then this opportunity at a very great public school um, in Bronxville opened up. And they were a terrible baseball program at the time. And a friend of mine called me up and he's like, are you interested in this job? And I'm like, no. He's like, All right, I'll talk to you. He goes, I'll talk to you later. And then I thought about it for a few days. And I told a friend of mine, like, why wouldn't you be interested in that? Long stories. But essentially, um, so then if, if Brookfield's here and Valhalla's here, Bronxville's here, Bronxville to home, not a pretty, pretty drive, especially after an 11 nothing loss. That, man, you're insane. That's, I mean, that's... Well, now you know. Now you know why it was a combination of things to move around, right? So I want to I get into your, your podcast a little bit here because I, I think people out there listening to my podcast would enjoy it. It's not baseball driven, but you have so many unique guests on the podcast. And for me, as a baseball coach, I'm always looking for ways to, to get better. And like as you mentioned, make an impact on the players that I'm coaching. And I think you can do that by looking at, at other industries and, and how they go about, you know, whether building their businesses or leading their employees. Like when you started your podcast, what was your vision in terms of the guests that you wanted to invite on? Well, actually, I was a co-host on a baseball podcast, KWB Radio, uh, for several years with my friend Kevin. And uh, he kept trying to push me to do my own thing. And I, as the podcast kept going, we had umpires and scouts and coaches and players but I had this itch to, to kind of fill the other parts of my life where I like food and wine and business and sales and travel and all these different things. So I knew if I ever launched the podcast, it would have to be more about more than just baseball. And you can, listeners can see a pattern, right? Like I love baseball my whole life. I still do, but I just have more interest. I love to read, I love to write, et cetera. Um, so once it got close to being something I would really consider, I went to my note, notes app and I wrote down just a, a number of guests that I had discovered in different walks of life that if I ever launched the podcast, I would want them on. People like Debbie Millman and Seth Godin, uh, Ryan Hawk and Daniel Pink, Daniel Coyle, um, and a few others. And uh, I'm happy to say 208 episodes in, Daniel Coyle is the only one that's been elusive that I haven't been able to wrestle down yet. Um, and I hope, to, I hope to get them, Talent Code and all those different, uh, the Culture Code. Um, but those are the type of guests I wanted to have because I wanted something that would scratch the itch of myself and listeners in all areas of life. And I've been super lucky that way. It's funny that you said when you were writing down some of the guests you wanted, because I too, when I, when I decided I wanted, or was thinking about starting a podcast, I'll never forget where I was. I was in Adelanto, California playing baseball out there in the Pecos league. 
And I was sitting in uh, one of the box seats. I don't want to say box seats, like it was nice. I mean, it was middle of nowhere. But I had my notebook out and I was uh, writing down all the guests because I my in- initial vision for the podcast or for just in general at the time was I wanted to do a two podcasts. I wanted to do one podcast on baseball player development and then I was going to do another podcast and it was going to be similar in a sense to what you do where it's more a wide variety of people and and so I started writing down everyone I knew that I thought was could I had had influence and was I'd be interested to, to talk to in general and I think 9 out of the 10 people were in baseball. So I was like okay, I think I probably should focus on just baseball and staying in my lane but yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I like about listening to to your podcast is just how good at interviewing people you are. You think that's something that's natural or you think you just keep getting 1% better? Well, first of all, thanks for the compliment. Um, I, it means a lot because I take it extremely seriously. Um, is it natural? No, but it appears natural because I started observing interviews when I was eight or nine years old. Um, uh, everything from watching Roy Firestone in my dad's den, which is right downstairs from where I'm recording today. Um, and we're just looking at him interviewing Wilt Chamberlain or Pete Rose or Ted Williams and, and, and just enjoying it. Not really talking about the craft, but my dad would always keep it simple and he'd be like, hey, that's a good, good show. That's a good show, that Firestone. So then I would see that. And then when I was playing baseball and having some success, my, my dad would be like an assistant coach and sometimes the head coach on like tournament teams. And then we'd be lucky enough to get local media coverage. And the, and the guy would always, you know, he would always mean well, the reporter, but he would always ask the same question. He'd be like, take me through it. Take me through that last at bat. How does it feel to be Council Rock? Right? And it would be the same six questions. And I, I really remember at that time, like thinking like, A, this is awesome. B, I would love to be on that side of the mic as much as this. And C, I, I think these questions could be better. I'm not trying to... It sounds like... Maybe it sounds like I'm a jerk. I don't mean that. Like I just felt like there was a way to spice it up. And I think like the more I talk to people like you who ask good questions and bring things out of me, I have a little bit of a, of a need for novelty, right? I, I want um, something that's a little different. Like I made anchovy toast the other night and like I was so proud of it. Like, and nobody really likes anchovy toast until they taste it. But like that's, I didn't want to make just like bruschetta, right? Everybody else would make bruschetta. I wanted to make anchovy toast. So when we talk about interviews, I'm always leaning towards different areas. And I think that's what... I hope people are picking up on, and that's kind of like a little bit of the origin of it. So you would say awareness was is if you could pick one word that would describe why you've become so good at interviewing people because it started when you were eight years old, and you had the awareness to observe someone interviewing someone else and say that could be better. I never thought of it that way. I'll accept that word for sure because I, I thought about um, I, I always thought about it like noticing things, but that would definitely be linked to awareness, and then. Just recently, I've been putting together some materials to help people understand a little bit of what I'm experiencing and whatnot. And like, in one way, I just had my son like draw this thing up where it's like the, the center of the circle is like the guest's expertise zone, right? And um, I want to always operate in that. I don't want to ask them like, what's their favorite flavor of salsa if they're um, you know, a salesperson that has nothing to do with salsa. That's ridiculous. But can I go to the edges of that circle and ask them things that they haven't been asked in a while? Because then I'm finding that they get lit up in their brain where they're like, I don't talk about this much or you're getting me thinking or no one's ever asked me that. So that's the moments where I want to live in. I want to live in the zone of expertise. That's why the guest is on. But I want to ask that outer rim that maybe someone else wouldn't ask. 
So I think that's directly related to, to awareness with just maybe one level deeper of like trying to draw connections. Like if I see something cool, I remember once asking Seth Godin about this van I saw on the Sawmill Parkway that had a cool sign, right? Like he doesn't know anything about vans, but he knows about messaging. So I tried to connect the dots and I think that helps me. Seth Godin is a legend. I, and I think you've, you've had him on twice, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. So one of well, someone we both know, Anthony Iaposi, I've had him on the podcast before. He, For those listening who don't know who he is, he, the past several years, he's been the big league hitting coach for the Cubs. He's been the big league hitting coach for the Rangers. Great guy, great coach. One of the, When he was on my podcast eh, maybe a year, year and a half ago, he said that I don't really view myself as a coach. I view myself as an interviewer. What do you think about that? It's a beautiful line, and I've never heard that from a coach. Um, that shows me his commitment to questions. Um, recently, I talked to someone about the difference between interviewing and conversation. And there's a lot of ways to look at it, and, and I think the simplest path is to say, in my mind, interview is a verb. It's something that we do as a tool of conversation. It works in tandem with listening and presence and preparation. Um, but I often think of myself as an interviewer as well. So I, I love that. Um, and to be an interviewer, you have to do two things above all else. Well, probably three if you include being deeply present. You have to listen. You have to ask great questions. And if he's asking his players great questions, there's probably a really direct path to getting them to understand things they never even thought about, which is really, really cool. I think it's important to ask your players very good questions because then they f- figure it out figure it out what you're trying to get them to do on their own. And if they figure it out, then it's more li- if they feel like they figured it out, it's more likely to stick. So I think that's where the asking why asking questions is so important as a coach because it can it's like a, an alarm clock or a light switch can go off at any point in time by the questions you ask and it can be that aha moment for them. Did you notice that too when you were coaching? Maybe towards the end when you started, you're doing some podcasting and and coaching too. Of you, maybe would you try and ask certain questions and see if that would spark something? Definitely, I, I remember an example of a, of a young man saying this towards the end. He saying, uh, you know. I'm trying to be a leader, but they're not listening to me. And I, I think everyone listening can relate to that, that the player or even yourself that you're saying, well, no one's listening to me. And then, you know, in a very simplistic example, I would say, well, what have you tried? And that usually right there, in this case, the, the gentleman's name was Ben. He got him thinking right away. He's like, well, um, and then he starts to unpack it. And even if he would have listed 10 things that he tried, if you just told me that the, it's not working, it's time to go to number 11. Right. And then the questions kick in and they're like designed. You always, I always think of the back, the the end in mind, the backward design, trying to get Ben to understand other ways without telling him. Have, you know, even if I said, have you tried blah, 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 that's still a question. But what have you tried? What does so and so do when you do this? Why do you think it's not working? Like, and then it's, I think you can almost, listeners can almost hear there's a direct path to exactly what you said. Like, Ben is already on his way to figuring out like what he's doing is not working. There's other methods out there that he hadn't thought of. And we let, we lead him to that. And then the results can be transformative if we're lucky. You, you have a course out asking better questions. I bought the course. It's fantastic. How do we go about asking better questions in general? Well, thanks for the, for the course, the course purchase and the plug. I'm really proud of it. It was uh, it's a self-paced course that you can take, 
um, in an afternoon. You can spread it out. You can kind of look at all 10 modules. But how do we ask better questions? All right. So I, I was working with someone recently and I tried to simplify it. And I said this, ask questions you are genuinely curious about. And that seems really basic until we really stop and think. So if you, listener or Patrick, ask questions you really want to know, the result is a proprietary blend that no one else can duplicate because you want to know it. It's not what you think the audience wants to know, although that's a piece of it that we could get to. It's what are you interested in? And then when you ask it with genuine curiosity, you're going to be lit up. Then we listen for the answer like our life depends on it. Right? We don't want to be anywhere else. And then what I like to think about is when that person gives the answer, I almost think of a gold sifter. I, I got to update my metaphors, but I still think like if you go back to the 1840s where you're like, this is all sludge, but there's at least one nugget of gold in it if we're lucky. And when we invite great guests on, there's always a nugget of gold. And then what do you do? You have so many choices of what you're going to ask as a follow-up question that I think the interview gets made or broke based on the follow-up question. Because I will give you something and then it's your choice. I look at it almost like a decision tree. Do I want to ask this or do I want to ask that? And I'm sifting for that gold. If you say X, Y, or Z, I get to pick those choices and ask in a certain way. The last piece that, that before I pause and let you dive in is, I think we need to word our questions incredibly precisely. Not to paralyze the asker, but to get clarity. So A, we want to be clear. I don't want you to have to say, what do you mean by that? If I can be a little bit clever or fresh, all the better, but it's got to be to not to the expense of clarity. So simple things like starting questions with what and how um, and why are going to go much further than are and do and is. And these are the things I've gotten that deep. And I talk about that in the course at a much, much more deep level. But I just want the question to reflect that which I'm genuinely curious about not confuse the person. And then when they give the answer, sift for gold and then repeat the process. And it becomes just, it is like, honestly, without being too on brand, it's that compound interest. Because if you do that enough times during a conversation, people end up clicking and they're like, damn, that was good. That was really good because you did that micro pattern over and over again. So if I'm going to play devil's advocate here, if you're someone who, maybe you, you'd mentioned that you would talk to someone that you're genuinely curious about or a topic you're curious about. But what if, what if you're talking to someone who, quite frankly, you, you're not that curious about, but you still need to talk to them, right? I mean, there's, it's a student, it's a player, it's whoever it is. Then what? That's a great, great counter. And uh, it happens all the time. Uh, I think depending on where you are in your life and your work, right? If it's a podcast host, you know you've made a, a grave mistake by inviting that person on if, if you have no interest. So that's, that's a piece of luxury. For people who are in their jobs and they're working with someone they're not interested in, it's the old Abe Lincoln quote where he'll say, I do not like this man. I need to get to know him better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Abe Lincoln, I mean, grand paradigm of, uh, of uh, honesty and integrity and whatnot. But the reality is you got to be able to find something interesting in a fellow human being. So if you're working with someone trying to get into their head or their shoes and understanding what makes them tick, or as Kevin Eastman said, what makes them talk is really, really powerful. So if I find someone who's... It's funny you say this because uh, I had a, a former student athlete of mine recently say this. He would come in in the morning, 
And the first person he greets is always negative. It's, on Monday, it's a disaster, he says. He's like, you know, every time I talk to him or her, it's just bringing me down. I'm just starting. What do I do? And he asked me, I was like, this is, I can't believe you're asking me. This is amazing. I'm like, you got to change the input. He's like, what, is, what the hell does that mean? And I'm like, well, think about it. Like you're saying, how's it going? How is the weekend? What's up? They're, they're not working. So the first thing you feed him or her has to be different. So try to experiment with something like, and, and I think at the dinner table is a great place to look at that. How is school today for our kids often becomes, nah, fine, blah, blah, because it's, it's something in our brains. We've been asked the question 250 times. We can't give a fresh answer. It, does, it would take like a Herculean effort for my son to be like, well, I know you asked me the same trite question 100 times, but today I'm going to give you a fresh answer. No. Ask him what the highlight of his day was. Mm. Change the input. Ask him what was the weirdest thing that happened today? What was a time that made you laugh today? When I say that, there has to be someone listening that's like, that's too hokey. That's too game showy. That's too podcasty. And at that point, I say, you might be right, but remember why we're here. We're here to have a great conversation. And what you're doing might not be working. So I think this is a huge shift that's pretty easy to do that works. And the last piece I'll say, Patrick, is most people want podcast conversations to sound like everyday conversations. I want everyday conversations to sound like podcast conversations. Mm -hmm. And on episode 150, I had my father on. And that's the episode that I keep getting more and more compliments on. And they say, I love your relationship with your dad. Now, let me be transparent. My dad was the best man at my wedding. He's downstairs now making long, hot Italian peppers for our family tonight. So he is an amazing man. But he'll be the first to tell you, he's not a conversationalist. Well, what was different? We put this in front of him. We put this on his ears. And when we were recording a podcast with a microphone and headphones, he opened up. It, it heightened the stakes. We can do that in our everyday lives. And, and that's kind of my mission now. The first thing that comes to my mind when I hear that being a, wanting it to sound like a conversation to me is Joe Rogan. I, I think he does an unbelievable job with his podcast. Now, I can never listen to the whole thing since it's five hours long, but every episode sounds just like literally what you described, a, just a conversation. And I remember listening to him when I started this podcast four years ago. Like, man, this podcasting thing isn't that hard. It's simply just having a conversation. Then you start actually recording. It's like, whoa, this is completely different than than what he makes it sound like. But I mean, do you do you study other podcasters like him when it comes to conversations? All the time. All the time. I'm building a file right now as we speak, getting a little organized in the new year digitally, um, where basically I have a profile accumulating on every podcast host that has either been recommended to me or uh, someone I find fascinating. I don't know if listeners will remember the Zagat's Guides. They were thin burgundy books. Some people used to pronounce it Zagat's, but it was a restaurant guide in different cities. And they would rate food, decor, service, price, and ambiance. And it would have one paragraph uh, underneath it about the restaurant. I was addicted to these guides. And in some ways, I'm building that guide for conversations. Like I want to know what Patrick Jones does well. And I want to know what Joe Rogan does well. And I want to know what Debbie Millman does well. And I, I want to be able to study and learn. 
sometimes a podcast host will will reach out to me or sometimes, you know, and I hate this part because it's it, you never know how to finesse it, but sometimes I'll just share things and say, hey, I was listening to your podcast. I love these three questions. I wonder what you thought about these three questions because I thought there was an opportunity here and I'm still getting comfortable with that. So I love it when someone asks me and then when you send it uninvited, you kind of just have to be as classy as you can and say, hey, you can delete this. But I think if you would have asked this question this way, it would have been exponentially. And it, you know, it's a dance because I do it with respect, but all the time studying podcast hosts. Well, since you, you teach public speaking, I can't not ask you about some public speaking tips for the audience. I mean, especially if, you, if you're a coach out here listening, you're talking to your team, at least you probably should be, every single day in some capacity. So, I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you got for us? What are a couple of different things that, that everyone listening can take away? I had this wonderful moment right before the holiday break where uh, a student in my class um, was giving a speech and one of the girls in the class giving feedback. We, we give, that's the other thing about public speaking. The feedback loop is so quick, right? In English class, you can all remember you hand in a paper on you know Groundhog's Day. Um, by the first of spring, you're getting comments back. <laughs> you don't even remember what the paper was about. You're like, Mrs. So-and-so, like, what? I don't understand. Like, I don't even remember this. In public speaking class, you give a speech, the kids in the class give feedback immediately afterwards. So I would say a, a tip number one from a macro level is where in your life are you getting feedback? Right? Are you just talking to your team every day without a feedback loop? Like you've been doing this for 20 years and no one's ever told you that you say the word like 300 times or that you do X or you do Y. We all have hitches. I have them. But this kid, uh, one of the days before break, one of the feedbacks, and this will apply to every coach listening. She said, I like this. I like this. But you were really doing the coach walk. Now, when a student in my class can take a concept that she learned, and I think everyone listening can picture this, we as coaches, we walk back and forth and look up and to the left and up and to the right. So basically, anytime if you were to go to any tournament USA, if you watch the coach addressing his team, he basically walks in a three-foot path left and a three-foot path right with kind of the hands here. And it's called a coach walk. We named it coach walk. So she's identifying it in a student. Half of the coaches listening are doing it, right? Instead of really freezing, getting eye contact and locking in, we're doing coach walk. So we're doing like this unintentional walking. Um, but I think there's two lessons there. One is don't do coach walk. But two is if you can get that feedback system in a trusted place. I don't know. When I was coaching, I didn't even ask people, hey, how was that talk? Or pulling aside someone and saying, hey, what, what do you remember from what I said? So... Those are two, two big You're ones. You're saying you, you would do that or you didn't do that? I didn't. I wasn't sure enough. I didn't realize it. I didn't realize that. We, I mean, we all know we need feedback, but we think like, why would I ask you know, Stacy for feedback? Why would I ask Tommy for feedback on my talking? There's so many other things to do, but the reality is those are the moments where we communicate. So I think having a, a feedback loop is huge. Um, there's a lot of other things. I always talk about the Jimmy V test, right? When you're talking to your team, do, do you make them laugh? Do you make them think and do you make them cry and maybe not get to that point, but at least moving them to, to being poignant? Um, I think another piece of it is not worrying about being nervous. The best in the world always tell us they're still nervous. So why are we in our public speaking trying to fight that? Right? I'm allowed to be nervous, but still be ready to go. So we always try to hide that. Well, I'm not nervous. I'm excited. Both are fine. You know, kind of leaning into that. 
Should you also, say, should you admit you're nervous? Cause it kind of, sometimes it feels like it's a built in excuse if this speech doesn't go well. I, I was just going to say, I don't, I don't believe in admitting it. I think you could admit it to yourself, but I don't say it. I don't coach people to say it to the group unless it's super extreme. Because in a way, let's say you're professional and you're saying, I'm really nervous. There's like a psychological thing where they're saying, you're getting paid big bucks. Like you can't tell me you're nervous. Like don't be nervous. But the reality is you might be nervous. But just like you might not see the stain on someone's shirt until you announce it, don't announce that you're nervous. Just know it. Know that it's okay and battle through it. So those are some that come to mind right away. Going back to the feedback loop, it's... So what I did a couple of weeks ago is I bought a GoPro and my idea with this GoPro in my cage is, you know, I can set this thing up and it can video the entire session, right? If we're working with a group of hitters for an hour long, record the entire thing, can watch the video. I don't have to worry or think about anything, you know, start and stop and video, all that. I can just focus on just working with the players in front of me. So what I love, ended up loving about it, though, was not necessarily solely just watching the video of the players, but also listening to what I was saying during the entire session. And some of the extra words that I would add in that were unnecessary, every single session that I would have a group, when I have a group session, I'd have, I'd always put together a little present PowerPoint presentation for some continued education and so I think it's it's fun to be able to have that feedback loop there where I can really kind of like understand what I'm doing well, what their body language is like, are they engaged and in, in interacting with it. And a lot of this is stuff that I've I've learned from you. And I remember probably I think this was in uh, shoot July. June or July, we were in so uh, for everyone to give a context, the the way the, the way that I would do it with the Orioles organization is every single day we would have a hitters meeting. And in the hitters meeting, I would always make a PowerPoint. So every single day I was making a PowerPoint. It was insane. It was every, I mean, it was, I, I mean, it was just crazy. But so in this PowerPoint, I would make gifts of every, of each starting pitchers pitch type. So fastball, curveball, changeup, And then I would make gifts of, you, this is the pitch you would want to swing at. This is the pitch you'd want to take so they could visually see. Then I would do some continued education, get over some live at-bats of, of MLB hitters that I want them to, to focus on, metal game, whatever it is we're focusing on. And then I'd also highlight the, the players too. The reason why I say all of that and explain that in detail is I was doing that every single day, was doing the podcast, um, still trying to do it d- throughout the year, Season two is a little bit difficult because of the schedule, but we're still doing it a good amount. And I was in, I was in Downey's and this is for me why awareness is so important as a coach. I gave this, I gave the, uh, the hitters meeting down East North Carolina place in the middle of nowhere. It's the low a Texas Rangers affiliate. I mean, it was just the, the clubhouse. Oh, I can just visually picture it. It's anyway, I gave the presentation on that day, starting pitcher, and, and the hitters meeting, and I remember thinking, that sucked. Like, that was terrible. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I will never do that again. Like I, and it wasn't, I will never give the, the presentation again. It was, I will never be that bad. You know, because that, in a sense, like, that's your performance, right? That is your at-bat for the day. Not for the day. I mean, there's other stuff you got to do as a coach. But I just remember thinking, like, I have to get better. Like, this is 
this is how you get burned out by doing the same thing over and over again. And, and the thing is, Joe, is nobody else knew it like, because I, nobody else knew that I could see, you could come up and ask somebody like, Hey, what do you think of Patrick that day? Did he do a good job going over the re- scouting report or not? They probably just put, Oh yeah, that's fine. But I knew it. And because I knew it, like it was important to me and I knew I had a room to grow. So it, I just wanted to, to kind of, put that out there because that's when I remember the bus ride home, I was on Twitter and I was like, man, I have to get better at the speaking thing. I mean, this is insane. And so I ended up stumbling across your Twitter. I don't remember what your Twitter Twitter bio was at the time, but I remember listening to your podcast and I thought like, man, like if I could speak like this guy, I mean, I knew my, our meetings would be so much better. My podcast would be so much better. And so that's why I reached out to you and, and we've been working together ever since. And I've been able to learn so many different things about the public speaking and being calculated and di- wanting to dig deeper and asking better questions. And so, again, I just think that, you know, I, I don't know if your recollection was any different than than what I had just said, but I think for me, it was it was very it, it was in a, a moment where nobody else knew or was going to say I needed to get better except for myself. And I think if you have that awareness to understand like, hey, I need to get better, reaching out to someone who is doing what you want to do better is important. I mean, I love every minute of that. And, and the only thing I would add would be as aware as you are and you have that awareness gift, the one blind spot I still see when it comes to your awareness is I think you believe that the majority of people think like you. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. I think you are, are someone who says, why wouldn't I want to get better? Why wouldn't I want to hire someone, invest time and money and, and cognitive energy? Why wouldn't I want to film my every move? And I'm here to tell you and everybody listening that you are an anomaly that you want to be great, that you want to be on a path of improvement, and that that takes action and commitment of various kinds. And that explanation, when when you were talking about the GoPro, there had to be people listening that were like, yes, I need to do that tomorrow. And then you say, well, you hired a coach for a little while, and we've had a great time working together. And there have to be people saying, I have to do that. That would be simple. You just email Joe and you go to work. If I like this guy or I email, I email Joe and I say, I don't like Joe, but I like someone else. Joe, recommend me someone else. But they will not take the action. It's only going to be the select few that take the action. And that's what has to be commended about your, your lifelong learning quest. I mean, I have yet to see your ego show up. I'm sure it's there. Like we all have it, but I haven't seen it where you're like, I'm not afraid to learn. I don't know anything about this. It's been incredible working with you because you continue to push me and have quests to learn. And I think that's the part that, you know, as we grow together, I hope you never realize it. I hope you think the whole world wants to learn like you. I, you know, I don't want you to, to get jaded, but I just want to, I think, I I mean, you hear of people getting burned out all the time. And I think that's why people get burned out. They, they're not growing. If you're not growing, you're dying. I mean, you just are. I mean, I hate this. I mean, maybe not literally, but I mean, from a, just an emotional standpoint, I, I really do believe you are. And so for me, I'm always looking to get better. It's just fun, quite frankly. Like you, when you see, I say this to players all the time. The, the best thing that, that I can do is put you in a situation and educate you and do all these things. 
for so you realize and feel when you're getting better because that feeling is addicting. And once you just get a taste of that, you will always be hungry for more, period, point blank. And it's hard, right? I mean, it's hard to get better. It's not easy. And that's why when you feel it, it's like a drug. You want more of it because it's not easy. But once you realize you can get a little bit better, whatever it is you're doing, oh, I got I to gotta have that drug. I have to continue with that thing because I have to feel myself getting better. Uh, and I hope that, you know, that uh, I'm not trying to, you know, make no, the perfect. connection between drugs and and getting better. But point being is I, I do think it's important in whatever facet of life that you're in, but especially baseball and especially coaching, especially because it's an art. It's not a, it's, it's more of an art than it is a science. I mean, for me as a hitting coach, how could you ever say you're, you're not trying to get better? I mean, there's, there's, I'm taking a graphic design course right now. I was in North Carolina last week. My younger cousin who is applying to different colleges right now, she's going to major in graphic design. And I started talking to her and we about different things and like this is what would help baseball coaches like if you put a course together i'll put that thing out there on social media because i know as a human being words and images and pictures and things like that that can be the light switch moment and if you understand how to do graphics and things like that that could get your point across versus some boring powerpoint that nobody wants to watch so I don't know. I know I'm going on a little bit of a rant here, but it's I'm pretty passionate about it. Your your cousin made the course? She did. And I told her if she did, A, I would buy it from her and B, I would put it out. But she's uh, extremely talented when it comes to graphic design. And uh, it's again, it's something I, I'm taking a course right now. It's only like 12 or 13 bucks. Like I mean, it's it's so much fun to be able to do that kind of stuff and and just see see players like gravitate towards it when you put it on the screen and then ask questions, follow up questions. And they would not do that if I just put some boring stuff up there, they wouldn't. And so I think that's where evolving as, as a coach comes into play where, you know, I'm sure if you just said, Oh, this is how we do it. Putting up just some boring stuff up there. I mean, that's just not how the human brain a lot of times is, is wired in my yeah, opinion. I, I can land the plane with, with two, two interlocked points. One, one of the things I wrote down uh, in preparation for our talk today, and I want to just pause there and say, yes, when I'm a guest on a podcast, I'm writing things down that I would love to talk about if the opportunity presents itself. Patrick's the host, but there's things that you want to talk about. It's preparation. And I think the perfect place to mention this is the Kai Carrera effect. I have spent a lot of time, I think we've talked about this briefly, thinking about the legend that is Kai Carrera. Now, if we think about him, and for anyone who's maybe not in the world of baseball, you came from 1% better or whatnot, Kai is one of the coaches on the San Francisco Giants major league roster. Uh, you know, And he's in the dugout, and he's been integral in their development. So let's unpack two possible scenarios. One, Kai is a baseball genius savant who... Um, is just unmatched in his knowledge of baseball. Let's just assume that's true. And that's how he ascended so meteorically. Well, then he would have to communicate his abilities as a savant and as a genius in a way that was palatable and didn't you know, make people be put off. So his communication skill would have to showcase that in the right way. Or let's consider another possibility. Maybe Kai is a great baseball coach, 
with otherworldly communication and design abilities. In which case, that has helped him meteorically rise from low college baseball ranks to the major leagues. Either scenario, what is at the forefront is his elite world-class communication skills. And I think that is an incredibly powerful thing for every one of us to hold on to. I'm so happy you brought that up. I remember listening to him talk at ABCA with one of my buddies who's in an MLB organization right now. We, I didn't, we were listening to him talk and he leaned over to me. He said, that guy is going to be a bench coach in the big leagues someday. And two years later, he's bench coach in the big leagues. And I mean, I mean, it's, we, we were texting the other day about it, Joe. And it was funny because you said, <laughs> I think I screenshotted and texted you some of his PowerPoints and you said, yeah, Kai is a graphic, a full-time graphic designer, part-time baseball coach. <laughs> And he was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'm probably one of the rare people that means that as a compliment. Yeah, like that's total, a straight 100%. up compliment. Yeah. You know, and it's just communication abilities. I, I've, I've had one meal with Kai and, you know, we, we seem to hit it off and I'd love to talk to him further. But the reality is, if you said to me what makes him so special, I would say his ability to communicate. Joe, this has been a, a ton of fun. Uh, you know, something that, you know, I've, I've enjoyed, always enjoyed talking with you, working with you. Where if someone wants to get 1% better, if someone does want to continue to grow and, and see themselves get better in whatever industry that they are in, what's the best way to get in, in touch with you? I would love them to go to my best graphic design representation on damngoodconversations.com. Take a look around there. Um, any listen to the podcast, any episodes 1 through 208, we've done it every Sunday since 2017. Uh, 1% better. I spell it out. O-N-E. Uh, that's kind of the baby. And then, uh, you know, you got me thinking. I, I need to put a GoPro in my classroom, ask my students for permission to be on camera, at least the back of their heads, and me evaluate my communication ability. Um, so I have to do that. So for anyone listening who wants to take that next step and they're just a little bit afraid, text me something. Uh, DM me on Twitter. Um, Ferraro on air on Twitter. Let me know a podcast you've been on. Um, talk to me about something that you're struggling with. Happy to help. Absolutely happy to help to give you a fresh set of eyes. I'll be sending my classroom footage to Patrick and then he's going to give me feedback. But just, just being inspired by you, Patrick, to like push it to that next level. Like, hey, we talked a lot about the feedback loop, but most people listening won't do anything with it because candidly, it's scary. It is. You know, it, it is scary to see myself on camera after the holiday pounds have accumulated and whatever. But if I want to get better... I have to take a look at my language and my communication. So any of those places, I'm happy to reach out. And um, man, thank you so much for the invitation. This has been a true pleasure. Oh, it's been, it's been a pleasure to have you on. It's been fun. Uh, it's something that, you know, we'll have to 100% get you back on again and, and do another one of these episodes. But I mean, for those who are, who are listening to this, watching this, because this is on YouTube too, you know, I don't, I don't always very, I really very rarely endorse people on the podcast. I mean, I've done, this is my 235th episode. So I don't, I don't endorse a ton of products. I don't endorse a ton of people. So what a point being is by me and en en uh, endorsing Joe, I, I know that no matter who you are, if you reach out to Joe, he's going to take care of you. And, uh, you know, I put my name on him. So I, I know he's, he's the real deal. I, I wouldn't say that 
if I didn't believe it. So Joe, appreciate it again, my man. Uh, hope your dad is is cooking some good lunch downstairs. And, uh, you know, at some point we'll have to get together and, and maybe eat at his restaurant. Oh, it would be fantastic. It's happening. He's been there since 84. We got, we got a, a lot of catching up to do, man. Thank you so much, Patrick, and enjoy the new year, man. Awesome.